Romans chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning. So open up to Romans 15, please. I want to tell you about Jason. Jason is a friend of mine that I met through Foster the City. He's a teammate. And this last January at a retreat at Mount Hermon, where we gathered sort of our whole Foster the City team for a leadership retreat, uh, Jason was my roommate. And uh, part of Jason's story that's so powerful is he was, uh, he was in foster care, and here he is, God's using him to, um, to raise up foster parents in the church uh, and even be a foster dad himself. And one of the things he shared with me um, this last January was just some deep hurt that was raw and honest and ongoing, and it centered around infertility. And we prayed together, we talked together, we cried, because I ached for what he ached for, which was to have biological children of his own. I saw this post on Facebook this week. He writes this, as many of you know, we've been trying to conceive for many years. The constant grief that came during all the times of disappointment was one of the hardest things we've ever had to go through in our lives. For those who are going through this, I see you, and God is always there waiting with you. For us, we pondered whether or not a child would ever be, whether or not this would ever happen for us. As I chose to celebrate others' joys and gifts, I patiently continued to wait in the suffering in my quietness, yet still we waited. Now our waiting appears to be over. If you see the shirt on my lady, now you see that God is blessing us with a baby. And he says, baby Aggie Rice is coming May 2023. You know, maybe like Jason, you have what seem like some wasted years. Maybe as he wrote it, constant grief and disappointment. Like Jason, you have a choice to celebrate others' joys even as you endure your own disappointments. By the way, I'm here to give testimony to the fact that Jason did this supernaturally well. He rejoiced in other people's blessings. You may be in a time of waiting like Jason and his wife were, and waiting, and waiting, and waiting, such that your psalm that speaks to you most in our psalm book is this, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Like Jason, your waiting may appear to be over on the next page. No matter where you are today in the story, The encouragement this morning again is this, keep reading, keep at it. You're going to love the ending. What would Jason have told himself last January if he knew the news that was coming to him in this season of life? He probably would have said to himself, Jason, hang in there just a little while longer. It's going to be worth it. There's this Geico commercial. If I stop and go back to watch a commercial, by the way, it's going to be really good. 
There's a Geico commercial out right now where four young adults kind of come in a dark, scary thing. They're out of breath. They see this house. And the first guy says, hey, let's go hide in the attic. And the next person goes, no, let's hide in the basement. And then the third person goes, how about if we go jump into that running car? And it has headlights on. It shows the shot of a car. And they all say, no. And the last person says, let's go hide behind those chainsaws. Right? And then here's the tagline. If you're in a scary movie, you make bad choices. That's what you do. Right? That's a technique that directors and authors know, which is this. As we read a story, there are times that we see the protagonist and we go, no, don't go that way. Why? Because we as the audience... We as the reader already know something about that direction that's going to go really bad for them. You've been watching a movie or reading a story like, no, don't trust that person. Oh, that person's saying it's so good. I probably would have been duped too, but don't do it. It's a little pro tip. They can't hear you. Okay, the person on the screen can't hear you. The person, it's already been written, right? But it's true of our story too. You wonder what God is trying to communicate to us in the midst of our story. Don't give up, Jason. It's only January. October's coming. May's coming. Hang in there. Keep reading. We're continuing today to look at historical narrative, simply the story of what happened in the Bible. And as we understand and remember uh, the idea of genre, like what genre are we in? What part of the library are we in? In this library of scripture, what are we actually reading? It actually unlocks the nutrients that God has for us by understanding that. Today, I want to give you some really practical helps for this. All right, so Romans 15.4, I hope you're there. Uh, Open your Bibles and look at it. Open your apps and look at it. Get ready to highlight, get ready to read, get ready to mark it up. It says this, Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. Short little verse, so much powerful truth in it. I'm going to walk us through it really quickly. Number one is give yourself to what was written in the former days. What's written in the former days? That's the Bible. It's there for you to learn. You know, much of the Bible is historical narrative. It's a story. It's just proclaiming, here's what happened. And this shouldn't surprise us. This doesn't surprise us because Christianity is not founded on lofty ideas or ideals. Christianity is founded in historical truth. We actually heard this in Penny's reading today. John's cousin, I mean, Jesus' cousin John is John the Baptist. He was in a Judean wilderness. It was around this time with this ruler God has placed the story, not in ethereal maybe, but in historical reality. It also makes sense that much of the Bible is historical narrative because God is a proclamation being. Here's what I mean by that. The gospel, the good news that we stand on and that we announce to others is quite simply this. It's what God has already done for you, not what we need to do for God. Isn't that great news? Isn't that part of when Lucas said, hey, just receive 100% from God today. I found myself, I take deep, deep, deep breaths on Sunday mornings when I'm here. Just to soak it in. Say, yes. Yes. 
I am loved. It's announced. It's happened. It's unchangeable. It's objective. The good news is proclamation. Here's what God has already done for you. So what has God done? Well, the Bible records it. The Bible records history and people and places and things that actually take place. And to be sure, we better keep the cross of Jesus Christ right at the very center of the story. Because that's the place it has in all of Scripture. A couple of Sunday nights ago, I was speaking at a church, and my son Eli and I were in the back. We walked into kind of their, their sanctuary, their worship room. And there was a giant rectangle box up front, and Eli turns to me and he said, Who died? Well, Jesus died, and he bids his followers to come and die also. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus rose again, and as the first to rise from the dead, we get to follow in his footsteps in a brand new way of life. That's what I should have said. You know what I said? I'm like, oh no, that's the uh, communion table. Remember, you always think of your best lines after the fact. But that's a great question in church. Who died? Jesus. You know the words that were written on the front of that giant rectangle box in front? In remembrance of me. I pray we'd open our Bibles and just have that filter. In remembrance of me. What is this series about? It's about in remembrance of Jesus. As you go to the pages of Scripture... I hope you listen to scripture. There's power in hearing it. So hit play and go for a walk. Activate your body and listen. And as you hear the words of God, that we would have this filter, this in remembrance of me, always in front of us. Jesus and the good news he proclaimed is the key to it all. If you take away the lens of Jesus and the lens of the cross, I guarantee you, you will misunderstand and misapply the Bible. This happens all the time. Watch for this. When you hear something and someone's quoting scripture, like, is that right? Yep, that's in the book. Why does that sound so off? Oh, they're not looking through the lens of Jesus. They're not looking through the lens of the cross. That's why. Just watch for that. So church, give yourself to keep reading because you and I need instruction. What was written in former days was written for our instruction. I won't ask for a show of hands because I already know the answer. Who needs instruction? All of us. In a host of ways. Let's keep going. That through endurance. That through endurance, the Bible continues to say. That means keep reading. Keep going. Don't ever quit. Church, hear me. The author of your faith has truth that is waiting to be mined from Scripture. And it's sitting right there for us. Put it to use through understanding and obedience. I guarantee you this will require effort, and I guarantee you that you can do it. And it will be worth it. I'm not going to take time to walk through these one by one, but in the opening part of this, I talked about return on investment, ROI. If you're going to be asked to do something difficult, you ought to wisely ask, what am I going to get out of it? Why should I? Here are a few reasons. There's a host of others. But we will read over Jesus' shoulder. We'll train ourselves to ask, how would Jesus have read this text? How did Jesus... Fulfill this text. 
It's all about him ultimately. So how does this fit with that? We get to be on the other side of the resurrection. We get to be on the other side of the ascension. We get to be on the other side of the close of Scripture. So we have all these kind of tools to help us. Let me just tell you that as we make our way through entire books of the Bible on Sunday mornings at Neighborhood Bible Church, I want you to know the intentionality behind this. We are modeling what we're talking about. The kind of discipleship we're talking about says, you go and do this for yourself. You go and read this for yourself. There is deep wisdom of God. As a child, snorkeling on the surface of the scriptures is sufficient. Let me tell you what genre does. Gaining an understanding of genre is gaining some tools that allow you to submerge deeper and longer and better and mine the riches of the ocean. No matter how good of a scholar you are, how long you've been doing this, how much of the, how much of the ocean of Scripture have you discovered in a lifetime? A Dixie cup. That's it. But a Dixie cup's a whale of a lot better than an eyedrop single speck of a droplet. So church, I'm celebrating, but I'm pleading with you, dive in. So next part of this verse, let me read it again. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Give yourself to it. That through endurance, keep going. Here's the rest of it. And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You are going to love the ending. Hope is where it all leads. But here's the great thing. It's not just that it's, life is just a series of just pain and trial and troubles. And at the very end, if you slog through, there's some hope. Actually, life is filled with little redemptions, isn't it? Little gifts. Little markers that, nope, new life is coming. Little things that sort of cue us in. There's little mini hopes that all point to this grand hope at the end. How do you keep going with endurance? Through the encouragement of the scripture. The scriptures are there to feed that hope. What keeps us reading is not one final redemption at the very end, but the thousand smaller ones that tie in together at the end. So here's how I'm going to break up this morning. If you're taking notes, we're going to give you some history lessons. Woohoo! Not a lot of shared excitement. All right. Um, so because, because we're talking historical narrative, I thought, wouldn't it be good to, to give three sort of history lessons directly from Jesus? Okay? We want to have a view of Scripture the way Jesus does. I don't want to have a higher view of Scripture than Jesus did. But I don't want to have a lower view of Scripture than Jesus did. I'm a disciple of Jesus, so I want to think the way Jesus thinks about historical narrative. All right, here's how we're going to do it. Lesson number one is Jesus interpreting current events through historical events. All right? And the first one, he's going to do this in, in two kinds of ways. Flip over to Matthew 19, and we're going to take a little look at a passage here. Believe it or not, in Bible days, there were marriage problems. Shocker, I know. Things get hard in a marriage, and you know what people look for? The eject ripcord. How do I get out of this? What is my way out? So there's marriage problems now, there's marriage problems then. Is there a get-out-of-jail-free card? Matthew 19, verse 3 is where we're going to be. 
What's happening is Jesus is being questioned, and what I want you to see is this. Jesus, by answer, points back to history. He points back to Genesis 2 and the first marriage. Okay, watch for it. Matthew 19, verse 3 says this. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You're like, wow, this sounds like marriages. I mean, weddings I've been to. That's where we're getting it. It's right from the scriptures. And Jesus is actually quoting what was said long before he walked the earth. Jesus is pointing back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve as history for our instruction. Actual people and places that highlight God's beautiful design. You can read all about it for yourself in Genesis 2. Let's keep going. The opponents, his opponents pressed the point. Verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So let me just show you that the pattern continues. In the very next breath, they bring up another historical figure, Moses. Jesus doesn't shift gears and say, oh, we were talking about mythical Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve before. Now we're talking about historical Moses. Let me, let me shift that. In the same breath, he moves from historical Adam and Eve to historical Moses. And he instructs them from history. And what's the why behind allowing for divorce? Sinful, hard hearts. Here's the history lesson. Jesus, interpreting current events, current questions, what's allowed, what's not allowed, and he uses what's already been written as the referee of what's inbounds and out of bounds. He interprets current events with biblical historical events. To say it another way, Jesus leans on what God has already revealed in written history as sufficient for our current questions. I pray you catch the weight of this. Let me say it again. Jesus leans on what God has already revealed in written history as sufficient for their current questions. Sin-sick hearts and minds always, hear me, always get out of tune with God's perfect pitch. When they do, and it becomes fashionable to think this way or that way, we have a tuning fork called Scripture. What was written in the former days is for your instruction. Notice the ancient wisdom and perfect start is what Jesus goes back to. Gender is established as created and gifted by God. 
Fittedness is from God. His design and purpose have not gone out of fashion. Only their ideas have. All right, let me give you one more. People had marriage problems back then. People also had Messiah problems. Turn over to Matthew 22, a few pages. Jesus pulls a little riddle me this, and he's going to talk about King David, a noted figure in history. And now it's Jesus' turn for a question. Jesus is going to expose their lack of understanding about the coming promised Messiah, because that's really important to Pharisees. Should be to us also. Matthew 22, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. (laughs) Afraid to ask Jesus a question because he might ask you a question. And here you are, the teacher, the religious leaders, and you have no concept about about what he's talking about. I don't know. No idea. No clue. What Jesus was doing was he was exposing they had a Messiah problem. Here's what's fascinating. Jesus, the eternal God, has become incarnate. What does that mean? He took on flesh and bone. That's what it means. And he's talking with these men. What's the subject? Himself. Jesus, the Messiah, is the one asking the question. The promised Messiah, who plainly would come from David's bloodline, was also David's Lord and King. How is that possible? So what I want you to note again is that Jesus is giving clarity to current questions, current events, by looking at past events. Do you see the pattern? Jesus is giving clarity to the current conundrum, the questions we have, what's happening, I don't know. Let's look to the scriptures. The stories in the Bible are for us to learn and trust all the more. Now here's what I know. Marriage problems and Messiah problems are as current today as they were in Bible times. People across our land, and you go to any country in the world, have relationship problems and confusion about marriage. Whether they hold to traditional marriage or not at all, there's problems. And Messiah, looking for someone to save them out of their living hell that they're walking the earth with, we have Messiah problems and marriage problems that abound today. Solutions and opinions abound as well. I've heard a thousand stories of what you're like, we sang last week. Unless God reveals what he's like, we wouldn't come rushing to him. We would be in fear of him. One more little side bonus. If you want more on this, go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and listen for these words. You've heard it said, but I say to you. That's Jesus exposing how their current misunderstanding is actually corrected by what's already written down in the past. Okay, 
Let me move on. That's lesson one. Here's lesson two. Jesus interpreting future events with historical events. So you see the pattern. First, he looked at current events by looking back. Now he's talking about what are the future events? What's the future going to hold? Let me look back to see ahead. He goes to Noah, Matthew 24, verse 36. He's talking about the second coming, the day of the Lord. Our students, our, our children in family ministry have been learning about what they're calling in the family curriculum a special day. <laughs> I think that's kind of funny. So I'm like, oh, it's special, all right. But here's the reality. The promised truth of Scripture is there's coming a terrible and awful day of the Lord where things will be set right. Why can we take a deep breath and not need vengeance on our enemies? God's got it. If you are not a part of Christ, the day of the Lord will be a terrible day. That's the theme of being what's talked about. Christ is offering himself as an ark, right? As someone to come and be in Christ and be saved. And there's a whole bunch of scripture to just noodle on. That's just to whet your appetite. We're not going to get into it. Noah, Matthew 24. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. What day? The day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus. He goes on, verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Again, let me show you the pattern of what Jesus is commenting on historical narrative in our scriptures. Noah and his contemporaries are referred to as historical figures who are prototypes for future historical figures. Christian, hear me. Do not be ashamed to say there was a worldwide flood and a family with Noah at the head of it who was saved through the flood by the word of God. Do not be ashamed of that. Jesus wasn't. Real people going about their lives oblivious to the ways of God because they had shut their ears to the herald who was proclaiming news day after day. How did Noah do it? With his mouth? Yes. But also by a massive object lesson. Remember the ark? I mean, you're building an ark for decade after decade after decade. You're putting your money where your mouth is, your time where your mouth is. That's an object lesson. There's really coming a day when a worldwide flood is coming. Repent and be saved. Jesus, in the same breath, says, just as in the days of Noah, what's the pattern? So will it be in the future. When you go back and read the days of Noah, it sounds an awful lot like 2022. People oblivious to the coming wrath of their sin, totally convinced they're safe, People not listening to those who are proclaiming truth to them urgently, fervently, in word and deed. And Jesus says in a moment it's going to happen to them. What's the history lesson? Verse 42. Therefore, here's Jesus' commentary on that. Stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord 
is coming. That's Jesus interpreting future events from past events. Here's lesson three. Jesus interpreting today's very moments, today's events that involve actually the past, the present, and the future. Turn to John 13. In John 13, the setting is Jesus and his disciples and John, the gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There's four of them. These are four biographies of Jesus. John, the author, is just telling us a scene of what happened. He says this, Jesus, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Let me show you in a short little historical narrative how Jesus is going to actually tie in the past, the present, and the future. Okay, Quickly, the past. He's saying this was predicted. The scriptures have already talked about this, and it will be fulfilled. Before the Bible is ours to apply, it's Jesus's to fulfill. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. You know what Jesus is doing? He's quoting a psalm from their hymnal. He could say, turn to page 235, look at verse 2. Here it is, Psalm 41.9. Listen, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Is Bible prophecy where something is predicted and then fulfilled later hard to understand? Yes, sometimes. Sometimes it's fall off the log easy. It's barn door and you're four feet away, easy to hit. I can see that. Jesus, talking to Judas, quotes this psalm and is saying this is being fulfilled. That's the past. How about the present? I am telling you this now before it takes place. This is John just commenting on what Jesus said. He's saying, I'm telling you this now before it takes place. Jesus is in full control and is explaining what is happening. He's saying this moment is history making. What we're doing right now is history in the making. How about the future? Well, Jesus comments on that. So that when it does take place, you may believe. My actions, my predictions are signs that will carry the past and will come true in the future. We've heard him say this elsewhere. Let my works verify my words. I am who I proclaim to be. I'm going to say this is happening now, so that when it does, what? You may believe. Let me throw one more in. I'm not sure if this is even really a thing, but let me me put a fourth category in. This also affects the super future. What's the super future? The the super future is us. I mean, isn't it fascinating that we now have 2,000 years of track record to see, study, marvel, and believe. Jesus wasn't accidentally killed by mean men. He laid down his life as a sacrifice on our behalf, just as he said, just as the prophets before him, centuries before, predicted what happened. Eugene Peterson, I read this two weeks ago. He says, the way that Jesus turned Judas's betrayal, the Jewish trial, and the Roman crucifixion, all horrible events for him, into acts of atonement 
and redemption is as powerful of an incentive to believe as the positive acts of revelation in which he shows his glory. Church, learn and retell our history, the biblical history, what God saw fit to preserve. That's what Jesus did. The Spirit is forming Christ in us, and we're hungry to see what God is doing and how to cooperate with that. Let me close by giving you uh, kind of two tools of the trade to help you with, okay? One is incredibly practical and possibly even something that you've heard before. We talked a week ago about the idea that the library of Scripture, 66 books of the Bible, is actually one cohesive story. Frank Turek, who has stood on this stage a couple of times, is a great apologist, and he wrote a book called Stealing from God. And in his book, Stealing from God, I highly recommend it, he offers up this tool, the idea to stop before you read Scripture. And stop is an acronym. If you want to write it down, it's going like this. It's basically helping you discover the meaning of any biblical text that you come across. Number one is the situation. This has to do with genre, right? What is the historical situation? What do you need to know about the people and events in the story? What's the larger context? If you read this little scene of Jesus and the disciples and didn't understand who Judas was and how he betrayed Jesus, that section wouldn't make much sense until you understand the broader context. Number two is type. What's the type of literature? Is it historical narrative? Is it poetry, prophecy, law, wisdom, or a letter of some kind? Again, this series is helping you answer this. It's helping you filter that through. Here's the O. The object. Who is the object of the text? Everyone? Specific people? Ancient Israel? Is this old covenant or is this new covenant? Do you see how not understanding some of the things, you get wild, crazy misunderstanding and wild and crazy application all from the Scripture? You're thinking biblically, but you're not thinking theologically. Here's the P. The P might be most important of all. Prescription. Is this passage prescriptive for us today or merely descriptive of a historical event? You ever hear someone say, well, it's in the Bible? When someone says, well, it's in the Bible, whether it's a preacher or someone trying to battle you as a Christian, you ought to think in your mind, there's a ton of stuff in the Bible. Doesn't mean I'm supposed to be doing it. There's a lot in our news that is reporting what happened, sort of. You have to filter that. But there's, they're reporting what happened. Doesn't mean you should be duplicating all the behavior that you see. So as you read Scripture, as you read a story, you're asking the Lord, God, is this prescriptive? Is this something I should be doing? Or are you just describing what went on? Let me make a quick plug for something that um, neither Becky nor I work for this devotional company, but we have found this really helpful in our own personal kind of quiet time around Christmas and Easter. Becky reads it longer. But there's an organization called She Reads Truth. And to be inclusive to us guys, there's one called He Reads Truth. So we got in on it as well. 
And what we're going to do is we're going to put in a bulk order for Neighborhood Bible Church and invite anyone who wants to, to take the Advent season, which is coming up near Christmas time, and just kind of read through scripture and jot some notes about it. Here's why we love she reads truth, he reads truth. It puts the scripture front and center in the devotional. I think if you take percentage of what the devotional is all about, it's like 98% scripture. Well, you're like, Dave, I already have my Bible. Why would I want that? Here's why. It does an incredible job. Uh, Two years ago, I think it was, um, a light has dawned. That was sort of the theme. And so to pull from the prophet Ezekiel and kind of place it right next to, to see Jesus say words and then to see the psalm that was written and kind of see that all sitting next to it is really powerful and profound. I'll tell you what I want our church. I want scripture to be front and center in our church. And Becky's going to be at a table in the back. Um, We get kind of a group rate on doing it. There's zero pressure. This is just to enhance your own personal Bible study. Here is number two. If that's tool number one, here's tool number two. By the way, tool number one is much more uh, kind of left brain, uh, logical study. Let me get the actual answer. Let me find a a right angle and get this down. I'm just warning you. Tool number two is for more of you right brain people who are like, man, I'm, I'm going to get this. It's going to frustrate some of you left brainers. Just fair warning. Tool number two is to spend time regularly, I would say daily, with the author. Remember we talked last week about story? Like every story has character development. You ever, you ever realize that God's the author and perfecter of your faith and he's doing character development on you? We all have ideas of what we want the next chapter to be like. We pray towards those ends. And then God writes the story. Spend time daily with the author of your faith. Invite Jesus to read over your shoulder. What does that mean? Well, if reading over Jesus' shoulder is us reading the scriptures through the filter of that, inviting Jesus over our shoulder is to read the story of our life. Here's the good news. He's not just over your shoulder. The spirit of the living Jesus is indwells Christians. If you are a Christian today, he's closer than your skin. So as you interpret, as you stop and pause and interpret your history, he is there for you, with you, developing you. Here's three really tangible steps. Throughout your day, notice your movement toward or away from God. Just internally, what does it look like to move toward God? It's people who are, it's when you're filled with hope. It's when joy is there in the midst of bad circumstances. You feel a sense of your faith increasing. You actually feel a boldness and a deep love for people, not just a boldness to share the truth, but a love for them to avoid the coming wrath of God. There's a lightness in your step when you go, you know, if you kind of quantify my circumstances, I should probably be depressed right now, but I'm not. I'm praising Jesus. That's, those are all kind of indicators of moving toward God. What does it look like to move away from God? Plug in everything I just said and sort of reverse it. Right? A lack of faith, a decrease of faith, an increase of skepticism and doubt. Instead of meekly receiving the implanted word, you're constantly you're going, is that really true? Is that actually how it goes down? Instead of joy, you're feeling the burden Instead of trust, you're filled with anxiety. So what I'm saying is just throughout your day, just take mental inventory. The brain's amazing. Some of you are thinking about lunch right now while I'm preaching. I'd say shame on you, but this is a place of grace. Go go for it. You just think about lunch. Our brains can think about all kinds of stuff. Take mental inventory, but here's part two. 
The prayer of examine is something that Christians have practiced for a long time. Here's it in a nutshell. Stop. For, for me, it's in the morning. Some of you, it's at night. But maybe at the end of your day at night, stop and look back on the last 24 hours and just consider your ways with the gift of hindsight. Small little chunks of your history where you get to look back. And then look back and see, God, where did I move toward you? Where did I move away from you? Where was it that I was walking in the joy and lightness and celebration of my salvation? And where did that all go out the window and all I could see was two inches in front of my face? Here's step three. Write it down. But write down your actual experience with God, not just your beliefs about God. That can be a huge difference in any given week. We all know what we should write. Let this be a private journal between you and God. God, here's my actual experience. You can even say, I know I should, but then delete that. You don't even need to write that down. God knows. God, today I experienced fear and worry like like I, I never thought I would. I thought I was over this. Or you might just write down things that line up perfectly with what you believe to be true of God. This is huge. Let me just leave you on this screen and with a scripture verse. I went through something called Soul Care uh, in 2019 or 18. I can't remember what. It's a ministry that reaches out to ministry pastors and says, ministry pastors and missionaries and ministry leaders, we don't like seeing people burned out. We don't like seeing people chuck things. How providential is that, by the way, for going into a COVID time? Something in the neighborhood, according to George Barna, 40% of pastors have hit the exit since COVID started. Another giant percentage have strongly considered it. And here's, the, here's the, kind of the kicker. The younger the generation is, the higher that number is. People just going, I don't know if I want to step into this. So one of the things they had us do was each month there was sort of a different daily grace. Listen to this carefully worded, super powerful prayer. I ask for the grace, not ask, it's supposed to be ask. I ask for the grace to grow in my awareness of the movements of my spirit toward and away from God and to know myself as deeply loved. And what if for seven days you just started with that prayer? God, help me start to pay attention to what's going on inside of me. I'm going to wrap up with a scripture, and then we are going to dismiss. As we dismiss, the band is going to play. Uh, Outside of these walls is part two of our worship service. There's no obligation to stick around, but for Pete's sakes, there's food and fellowship. So hang out. Hang out with us. Get to have a conversation. uh, Process what's being talked about here, or talk sports. It's all just whatever's on the menu for you personally. Man, there's some neat things that are going on there. Let me have the band come on up, and as they do, close your eyes and just listen to where this verse goes in Romans 15. Very next verse, after saying that what was written is for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture. Verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement, there's those two words, grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Church, you are loved beyond what you can ask or imagine. 
God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word, telling us what you're like, telling us what you're doing. God, I pray that as we walk in community, whether that means roommates or friends or community group or family or some combination of all of the above, God, that we would look to you, draw close to you this week. In Jesus' name.